We'll be looking at the role of women in the church, the role of women in the church, as it uh, specifically relates to spiritual giftedness and what their role is. <clears throat> and we're dealing here with a church that's out of order, just so you understand. It's completely gone bonkers, the Corinthian church. And uh, as we saw last week, um, they were using this, not only the true gift of languages in a wrong way, just to be seen and to stand up and to be heard, but they also were using a uh, pagan counterfeit gift of ecstatic speech or utterances, and they thought that was their secret way of talking to their God that no one else could understand. And so we talked about uh, last week the procedure or the systematic way that God wants the gift, the true gift of languages to be used in the church. And we noticed a couple things, a couple principles when it comes to the gift, the true gift of languages. There's no place for this pagan uh, static speech that makes no sense at all because it doesn't edify anyone. And the role of the church, especially on a Sunday, is to edify the whole congregation. And so we saw a couple principles. We said principle number one, it, we pointed out there in verse 27, it says, if someone speaks in languages, it should be two or three at the most in any given service. It shouldn't be everybody at the same time speaking in this language. And then the second principle, we said it has to be each in turn. In other words, there's some order to it. It's not just because, well, the Spirit took over and there's total chaos. That is not. I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't take over, but in those kind of situations where it's very chaotic, you wonder what kind of Spirit it is. It's not the Holy Spirit, I can assure you. And so we have to be careful. And then the third principle we looked at, it says when someone speaks in a language that they don't know by the supernatural gift of tongues, you have to do it when there's someone there to interpret. Let one interpret. Let someone interpret. And it gave the indication that they knew who had the gift of interpretation. And they were abusing this gift as well. So if someone would stand up and speak in an unknown language, and then you'd have two or three people stand up, well, here's my interpretation. No, here's mine. And they just wanted to be seen in front of everybody using their gift. When, in fact, probably in one congregation, the Lord would give maybe one or two people, maybe three, the gift of interpretation, so that if someone used the gift of languages, at least someone was there to interpret. But then it says, the fourth principle we looked at, if there was no one there to interpret, maybe everybody was homesick or something, and there was no interpreter, then the person who has the gift of languages and feels prompted to stand up and share that should just keep silent. And the reason is because it's not going to help anybody. It may help the person that speaks that language, but that's all it's going to help. And once again, Paul's goal here in teaching the Corinthians is that you've gotten yourselves off base. You've come together as a church, and rather than focus on each other, you're focusing on yourselves. You're focusing on what makes you look spiritual, on what makes you look good, on what you like. And he started that all the way back from the very beginning. They were saying things like, well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. They were even touting their teachers and, and having competition amongst the ranks. And so it was a very twisted um, church. And so it's by no means meant to be used as an example of how 
spiritual gifts should be used in the local church because they were doing everything by Paul's teaching here wrong. Even the, the true gifts they were using in a wrongful way. And not just the gift of, of tongues, by the way, even the gift of prophecy. He had to give order to that. And that was the, the second thing we looked at last week in verses 29 to 33. We said not only does he kind of give order to the gift of supernatural languages, tongues, but he also says, hey, and if you're a prophet, you have to understand that it, the same rule applies. You can't just because you have the gift of prophecy just stand up and expect to spout off something. There's no order to that. And so he says two or three prophets speak at a time. And so you may have five people who had the gift of prophecy in a church. Well, Paul says, look, only two or three should stand up and tell forth the word of God. And back then, remember, the, the canon wasn't completely complete yet. <laughs> and so God was still giving fresh revelation. He was still giving people supernaturally the very word of God that they would write down and record that we have now in our Bibles. So he says, if, if you have a prophet up there teaching, you better make sure that it agrees with what is already written in the Word of God, the Old Testament, and what they had of the New Testament. But also, in verse 29, he says, not only just limited to two or three, but he says, other prophets should weigh in on what the prophet said. So you weren't, just because you had the gift of prophecy, you weren't able to just stand up and say whatever you wanted to. That's how... People misuse their gift. It says the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, when I stand before you and I open up the Bible and I begin to teach, I am subject to the word of God. I can't just get up here and say, well, this is what I think. Who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? It's irrelevant. You know, you hear that all the time when you're, when you're talking sometimes to, to people and you're trying to share the Lord with them or maybe it's a Christian and you're trying to give clarification to a verse, maybe they ask you a question. And they say, well, what does this verse say? And you go to the text, and you start to explain it. And they'll say something like, well, that's not my interpretation. <laughs> and I always say, I don't care. It's irrelevant what your interpretation is. It's irrelevant what my interpretation is, frankly. Because there's only one true interpretation of any verse of Scripture, and that's what the original intent of the author was to those who he was writing to. Now, we can apply it, right, to our lives in a lot of different ways. But when you start to come up with your own interpretation of Scripture, that's why when it's, it's very dangerous today in churches when, uh, unfortunately, so many pastors have forsook their calling as a pastor-teacher and they don't teach anymore. They have a dialogue with the congregation on Sunday mornings. And they'll read a verse, and everybody pops off what they think about that verse, and then they move on to the next verse. And there's no clarity given, because when there's clarity given, when there's actually teaching done, sometimes that teaching doesn't agree with certain people, and those people could be offended. And if they get offended, well, they could maybe leave the church. And they're more concerned with how many people they have rather than standing up for truth. And so you have to be careful with that. We don't want to chase people away just to chase people away, but we don't want to compromise the truth of the Word of God or the teaching of the Word of God in order to retain anyone. That's not our goal. So he says two or three prophets, they have to weigh in on what was said. And then he says, if a prophet's up there speaking and somebody says, hey, I have a revelation from God. God's given it to me right now. 
It tells us the third principle there. If a revelation, verse 30, is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. In other words, if we were back in the day before the canon was completed, that doesn't happen today because the Bible is complete. Matter of fact, John at the end of Revelation says, do not add to the words of this book. (laughs) Don't take away from the words of this book or or you're going to be in trouble. And so we believe the canon of Scripture is complete. So God isn't going to give you something that's outside of the bounds of Scripture. And that's where we have to be careful, I think, as Christians, because sometimes we give the impression that God is speaking to us in a fresh way in our own ears. And we just have to be careful. Now, does God impress us through the Word and through other believers? Definitely. There's been times when I wanted to make a decision about something, and maybe I talked to another believer, and they kind of swayed me one way, swayed me another. I prayed about it, and finally ended up making a decision. I didn't go to a verse and say, well, what does, what does it say? Should I buy this car or not? I can't find a verse about that. So I, I take people's wisdom in order to make a decision. Okay, but that's not God talking to you directly. God talks to us through his word. And so... He says, if a revelation is someone giving a fresh revelation, then the person who's up telling what was already written down, if someone's up here prophesying the word of God, they're just reading what was already written, and somebody has a fresh revelation, Paul says, hey, they, have, they take preemption over the person. And so the, the prophet who's up there just rereading what someone else was revealed to, then they sit down and the new revelation is made. And then the fourth one, we said the prophets are subject to the prophets. Well, today we come to this section of really a a procedure for women in the congregation, the role of women in the congregation. Now, remember, Corinthians had this all backwards. They had it all completely warped. And so their, their services were made up of not only men, but even women popping off and, and causing chaos in the, in the worship service. It's a wonder anybody was taught anything. Um, and I've been, frankly, in services where that goes on. I mean, I believe that there's, there's nothing wrong with saying amen or hallelujah or whatever. But sometimes the congregation overreaches, <laughs> In that, and, and pretty soon you can't even hear what the pastor's saying anymore because everybody's shouting and screaming. And then it turns into this frenzy, and it's just uncalled for, and it's not honoring to the Word of God. It's not honoring to Christ. So I want you to stand as we read verses 33 to 40, as we'll go through this rather quickly this morning, but speaking of the role of women in the church. Paul writes in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in languages or tongues. 
But all things should be done decently and in order. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray you'd apply it to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So he gives us this procedure. He gives this big discussion on tongues and prophecy and why prophecy is so much more important than tongues. It preempts it completely. But then he turns and he says, you know what? As in all the churches of the saints... Um, really, the end of verse 33 is the beginning of verse 34. It kind of makes more sense that way. Um, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, it it just wouldn't make sense to... um, connect the great sweeping theological truth that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, with the statement, as in all the churches of the saints. It doesn't make sense that way. So I really believe verse 33 and 34 should go together. Uh, God is not a God of confusion, period. Not just in the churches of the saints. He's not a God of confusion, period. Um, And so when we read this text, Paul all of a sudden brings up this subject of women. And this can be very controversial. Uh, Very controversial, because people don't, they misunderstand what the text is actually saying here. And so we want to bring some sense to this. Why does he all of a sudden bring the subject of women up in the church? What seems from what we understand of the Corinthian assembly, that the women were the ones who were leading this display. (laughs) They were the ones who were parading before, showing their gifts, doing all this stuff. They were really usurping the place of the male leaders in the church. As a matter of fact, there's no male leaders mentioned in this church. At the beginning it says, well, we're following Paul, we're following, but Paul wasn't there anymore. And so the Obviously, things went off the rails. And you see this a lot today in churches when men fail to step up and be used of God as their rightful calling within the congregation. What, what happens? Well, the women take over. And frankly, it's not right, but I don't blame them. You know, it's time for the men of God to step up to the plate and do what God has called them to do in the local congregations, in the local church, and that is lead. You know, when, when you don't do that, it creates a vacuum. And, you know, the Bible is very specific about the qualities and the qualifications of a leader or an elder in the local church. And it says that he who desires that work, he who desires that, desires a good thing. And I think a lot of men in churches today fail to understand that Being an elder in the church or being a leader in the local church is a good thing because they look at it as, well, I just don't have time. It's not going to be a good thing for me. Or how would I be used? How would I? And they don't even consider it. And frankly, there's, I think, I believe, men within our own church who meet the qualifications of an elder. But for whatever reason, they're reluctant to step into that role. And it shows us that they don't desire that. And see, as elders, we're not going to go around talking people into becoming an elder or a leader in the church. You don't do that. You do that, you you end up with a world 
of problems. You know, we want men who are qualified. We want men who are willing to serve the body of Christ. Is it a sacrifice? Definitely. It's a ministry 24-7. You know, it's not something that you choose to do every day. You don't have office hours. It's not like, you know, you can pick the problems you want to deal with. You have to deal with whatever is brought to you. And in any church, there are problems. There are because, frankly, we're all people and we all have problems. And so when we bring churches, people together, basically problems compound and you have to deal with things. And not just that, but there's other issues that elders deal with, um, church discipline, other things that go on that a lot of times you don't even see. Is it a sacrifice? Yes. That's why it's, it's a calling. It's not something you do because you want to be seen or whatever. That, that would not make any sense at all. It's a calling that God places upon your life. And so God here, he says, is a God of, of confusion, period, um, in all churches, not just here in Corinth. But it was an issue here because there was so much chaos going on. And it appears that the women were leading this parade to show all their gifts off and, and usurp the place of the men in the congregation. And it says basically by what it's saying in our text, the women were not being silent. Uh, they were not being submissive to the leadership. What were they doing? If you're, not, if you're not silent, then you're blurting things out over everybody else. Um, they're trying to take over the service. And Paul says, no, it shouldn't be that way. And so we talk here about the women's silence, silence within the church. And a lot of people have a problem with this because they misunderstand what Paul is saying. And so they say, well, that's just cultural for the Corinthians. That's not applicable to today. You can't expect, you know, women not to say anything in a church. And that's not what Paul is saying, by the way. But he's saying in a disruptive manner, that would be correct. Here, it was women who were causing the problem. But it could be very well men in a church standing up and confronting the teaching or whatever it might be, uh, that would be wrong according to God's word. Um, so Paul is not just trying to accommodate the Corinthian culture here. And that's what the modern-day church says is, well, you know, this doesn't apply today. Well, you know what? It's the word of God. And so you can't argue that Paul is saying this. He says, let your women keep silence in the churches. It's not a cultural thing. It's to be the standard for all churches. Um, and here, specifically, women were speaking in tongues, they were interpreting, they were singing their songs, they were prophesying, they were usurping the men's authority. And so Paul, because it was such a problem, he singles them out and he reminds them that, that women from the very beginning are in a place of submission. I mean, if you don't like that, talk to God. I didn't do this. God did from the very beginning. Now, that's not to say that God hasn't gifted women in marvelous ways, even with teaching. Um, there's many women who have wonderful gifts of teaching and proclaiming God's word. But according to this, they're not to exercise that gift in a mixed assembly where men and women come together. Uh, that belongs to who? That belongs to men. That's, that's what the Bible says. 
So it wasn't just a Corinthian um, cultural thing. Um, because he says there at the end of verse 4, why the women are not permitted to speak. He says it's commanded, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Well, which law? He's talking about the, the, the law of God, the Pentateuch. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says that men will, man will rule over woman. From the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning, the man was given authority over women. And so uh, this is the way God has set this up. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul says this. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then in verse 12, he says this. I do not permit a woman to, a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking here about the church of Ephesus. So it's not a cultural thing. Paul talked to other churches, and he says the same thing. It's a problem in Timothy's town. Women were usurping men's authority. And in verses 13 to 14, he gives us the reason in 1 Timothy 2. He says, for, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgression. So in other words, this is the divine plan of God from the very beginning. You can't just slide into in and out of, of you know, theology and say, well, you know, that's based on culture, that's not relevant for today. No, it's, it's, it's been something that has been applied from the very beginning by God himself. Um, you can ask God when you get to heaven, why did you do that? But he kind of tells us. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So somehow he's protecting his church when he sets it up that way. Now, verse 35, it points out there that it is, is shameful, it says. Verse 35, uh, for it is shameful at the end for a woman to speak in church. That word uh, shame literally means ugly or deformed. It's not God's plan. It's something that's out of bounds. In other words, for a woman to speak in the church is a deformity of God's original intention. It, it's a perversion of, of beauty into ugliness. This is what, what God's word says. Now, that's not to say that many women are not excellent teachers. I mean, I've listened to some women teach, not in a church setting, but, you know, through, through different means, whatever. And incredible teachers. And I've learned a lot. He's not saying that. But he's saying when you stand up as an elder or a pastor in a church, you're exercising authority over that congregation based upon the authority that God has given to you. And he says for a woman to exercise that authority, it's wrong. And it's been wrong from the very beginning. But there is a, a right place, a right time. It's just not in the assembly of the church. So we wouldn't necessarily have a woman come up here and preach a sermon from this pulpit. That would go against, that would violate that principle in the word of God. Have we had women missionaries come up here and read the Bible or, or share a devotion kind of a thing about their experience in the mission field? Yes. Does that violate this rule? No. It doesn't because it's not a disruption to the service. 
It's something the elders have looked at and said, okay, well, she's not preaching. She's up there, you know, sharing her experience on the mission field. So you don't want to cross over and become legalistic about this either. I mean, a church that would hold this in a legalistic way would say that women can never speak in a church, ever. (laughs) They can't say amen, they can't say anything. And believe me, there's churches like that. And so they take a principle that Paul is sharing here and they, they, they deform it, they pollute it, they turn it into something that there was never God's intention. All right? And so we have to be, be careful how we look at this. I mean, I praise the Lord for gifted women who are able to teach other women in our church. That's, that's the, the, the role. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul points this out there in verses 3 and 5. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. He's talking about women here. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, work uh, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we have to obey God's standard. We're not here to say, well, you know, if you teach that, the culture is going to hate you. Well, yeah, the culture is going to hate a lot of stuff you teach from God's word. It's not demeaning women. It's, it's acknowledging who they are in Christ and God's plan for them. God has a plan. Husbands are to love and to lead Wives are to submit and to respond to the leadership. The problem today is we have so many husbands that are not leading. They're not loving their wives right. And so they're creating chaos in the home. And then the woman has to basically take over everything because the husband's not doing anything right. See, God wants the older, the, the order here made visible because it's the order that he's made out of his nature. And he wants his nature to be manifested in the church. And when that doesn't exist in a church, in his church, um, unfortunately, it's violated. The church is not Christ-like. God cannot display himself or be on display in a church when they have a woman who is a pastor or a preacher. It, it's not going to work. doesn't mean they're not good at what they do. It's just a violation of God's word if you allow them to do it in a mixed company of men and women and expect the men to submit to their teaching. And that's what happens so much in the modern-day charismatic movement. That's why I say it's so much like the church of Corinth. If you look at a lot of charismatic churches, um, they not only have women pastors, but their preacher every week is a woman. And so they're violating this principle. And what they say is, well, that's Paul's word. That's not really God's word. Well, are we going to start dicing up the Bible and taking out verses we don't like? I mean, this is hard. I get it. It's hard to understand. It's, it's not hard to understand, but it's hard to apply in our culture today. But he, he tells us here where the source of a woman's teaching should be in verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, what? Let them ask their husbands at home. In other words, if the pastor says something when he's teaching... Not only really do the, 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 the only person that really has the, the right to stand up is, hey, wait a minute, what did you just say that's wrong is another prophet, according to Corinthians. Because the, the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
But here he dials in on the women because he, apparently they were standing up and confronting uh, their teachers over everything, and they were just putting themselves on display. And so he says, if you have a question, if you want to learn something, instead of just standing up in the middle of someone's teaching and saying, hey, I have a question, what about this? That's disruptive to a worship service. Now, does that include things like a home Bible study or even over there on Wednesday night when, when we teach on Wednesday night? Well, yes and no, in a way. I mean, it's not, it's not saying you can't ask questions, but there's a time, there's a place, right? And so if you have a, a question, and, you, and you, know, you should be asking your, your husband at home, not just standing up and shouting it in the middle of a worship service. Why? Because what are you doing if you do that? You're drawing attention to yourself. The exact opposite from what should be happening in a worship service. We're not here to draw attention to ourselves. We're here to put the focus, the light on Christ. So where does the responsibility lie here? It lies on the husbands to answer the wives' questions. That's, that's, really, that's how God's designed it. If you're married, if you have a husband, you should be asking your husband, well, what if your husband's an unbeliever? What if the answer is, I don't know? Okay, well, that's fine. Um, then you need to go to an elder and ask them. Go to someone else in the congregation. Ask them that question. But you don't stand up in the middle of a service and just start spouting off questions. You know, a lot of times on Wednesday nights we used to take questions quite a bit, and it it almost turned into um, the question really wasn't a question at all. They just wanted to hear themselves talk. Well, I have a question. Okay, sure. What's your question? Well, you know, and they start. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, you're going, okay, what's your question? Because they haven't asked a question. They're just, they want to speak. Okay, and they're, they're finding a venue to do that. That's not appropriate. All right? It doesn't mean you can't ask questions. If you have a question, come and ask. If you ask your husband, he doesn't know. If you don't have a husband, come and ask one of the elders, whatever. Ask another woman for that matter. But it doesn't, it's not saying you can't ask a question. It's just saying don't be disruptive in a service. And that's what was happening here. If there's anything they desire to learn, and he's using this phrase here because some of the people were asking questions during the service just because they wanted to hear their voice. They were blurting out questions to confront the prophet who was speaking. They were interrupting the prophet and the service, and they thought maybe if they had a question that would be okay. But really, bottom line is they just wanted to be heard. And the reason I know that is... You know, he's, he kind of points out, even with the prophets, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh in, right? So in this church, there was this desire to be seen, to stand up and to make themselves look spiritual. So the men were doing it. The women were usurping the place of the prophets who had the responsibility of discerning what was being said. So is Paul saying here that women are never to ask spiritual questions of anyone other than their husbands? No, he can't be saying that. That's not what he's saying. There's nothing wrong when questions are asked in a sharing time together around a Bible study or if you have a question and answer time. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a woman asking a question 
in the church if it's appropriate. If we have a special speaker and we say, hey, we're going to open this up for Q&A, it's fine for you as a lady to stand up and say, well, I have a question. That's fine because it's part of the order of service. But the public worship service is never to be interrupted or usurped by women under the guise of asking questions. Well, look at what he says here in verse 36 as we work through this. He says, or was it? And this is Paul's sarcasm. You know, Paul uses a lot of sarcasm in this book to get his point across. You remember when he said, you know, uh, if I have all love and all faith. and He didn't really have it. He's using sarcastic language to drive home his point. All right, so here he's using sarcasm to really uh, help them focus because he's really being strong about this. He's, he's giving them procedures for women and for tongues and prophecy. And uh, he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, you, you think you're so important that you have to stand up and disrupt the entire service because you think, what, the word of God came from you? That's what he's saying. And then he goes on, he says, or are you the only ones it has reached? In other words, you're the sole authority on this? Do you want to argue about these principles I'm giving you, Corinthians? Because no doubt they did. They, they didn't want to give up their preeminence. They wanted to be seen. So he says, did you write the word of God? Did it just come to you? Are you some kind of a law unto yourselves? You don't think you have to submit to the rest of the word of God? Did you write the Bible? That's basically what he's saying. Because there's two answers to that. Either you're the ones who wrote it, or you're the ones who are required to submit to it. That's it. There are only two options. So if you're not going to obey it, Paul says, maybe you think you wrote it. (laughs) Maybe you think you're the author of this. Or maybe you just think it doesn't apply to you, just everybody else. Well, the same scripture applies to you, applies to everybody else. That's how scripture works. And since it's all authored, it's all given by God himself, we only have one response, and that's to what? To obey. To obey the word of God. It's not rocket science. Now, we may not understand it. We may not agree with it, but we're called to obey it. And so Paul calls a halt to all their selfish activity. And he says, you know what? Stop this showboating and do only that which edifies, which builds up everyone else, not just yourself. And then in verse 37, he kind of sums up this exhortation. And he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or speaks in tongues or spiritual in in the context, um, it probably refers to the one who has the gift of tongues because he's constantly going between prophecy and tongues, prophecy and tongues. It's spiritual as a word, but it's probably relating to the person who speaks in tongues. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or speaks in tongues, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So they're subject to this. It's a great way to close his statement here. Uh, He closes the whole argument. He says, those people who have the legitimate gift of prophecy, the legitimate gift of speaking with other languages, they have to be subject to what I'm writing you. 
because this is the word of God. Um, those people who have legitimate gifts will acknowledge that I speak the word of God. And if they acknowledge that I speak the word of God, Paul says, they will bring their gifts under the submission to the principles that I've spoken. And you know what? If they can't control themselves, if they can't control their spiritual gift, then they don't have a true spiritual gift. It's just something they're making up. What they're doing is a, not a legitimate manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what we see today in the modern-day charismatic movement. Is we see an illegitimate use of so many of these different kinds of gifts. And in their, from their side, they say, well, the Spirit just came over me. I just can't control myself. Well, then it's not the Spirit of God. Because God can't be a God of chaos and disorder and a God of order and peace. He can't have it both ways. And so he, he wants them to clearly understand this, that I'm writing you these things as a command of the Lord. Now, some people argue to the point where they don't even believe the words of Paul. When you talk to them about any of these epistles that Paul wrote, oh, I, I, you know, what do they say? I just believe the words of Jesus. You know, there's, there's people today that will say, they'll say, oh, I only believe the words in red. And sometimes they don't understand what they're saying. They're saying it out of ignorance, but when you stop and you understand that this entire book is the Word of God, and that the words in red, if you have a Bible with words in red, they were made red by a printer, (laughs) okay, because they are showing you that this is Jesus speaking. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, well, his words are more important than any. Jesus is God. The Father's God. He authored the entire Bible. Now, sometimes it's kind of nice in the Gospels, if you're reading through the Gospels, to look if your Bible hasn't read, well, you know, those are the words of Christ. That's fine. But it would be wrong to say, well, those words are more important than the words of Paul. No, you can't say that. Because Paul was just as much inspired by the same Holy Spirit that Jesus was inspired. So he wrote the very words of God. So it's not cultural. Um, We can't just say, well, I don't believe Paul's words, but I'll believe what other people say. No. Um, You know, and people say today, well, women can preach if they want to. Is it that big of a deal? Yeah, it is, because you're violating a principle in God's word. Um, So you have to be clear about that. So it's, it's, it's something that is, is commanded by the Lord. But in verse 38, he says, if anyone does not recognize this, guess what? We're not going to recognize you. In other words, if you're so into yourself and you can't control yourself with your spiritual gift and you're not going to acknowledge that Paul is an apostle sent from God and he is le- legitimately revealing the word of God to you, if you're just going to say, nope, I'm tuning Paul out and I'm going to do my own thing, Then he says, if any man be ignorant, in other words, if you ignore what Paul is saying here, then guess what? You should be ignored. You don't have a place. We're not going to allow you to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it and violate principles that God has given us to maintain order in the church. And if a person doesn't recognize that, well, then we're not going to recognize them. 
So it would be wrong for, and you would be dealt with if, say in this church, say you just stood up and started speaking in tongues. And nobody could understand what you're saying. Ken or one of the ushers would come and they'd take you by the arm and they'd take you outside. Because we don't welcome that here. That's being disruptive. But what if it's a work of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not, because as we've studied, the true gift of languages has ceased. There's no need for it anymore. And so we've come to that point where we're able to understand that. And so we would recognize that whatever that person is doing in the moment is not of the Holy Spirit, because God is not a God of disorder and chaos. And so if you want to be ignorant of that, then that's fine. Um, One version says, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. (laughs) You know, if you're not going to recognize the word of God for what it is, then we're not going to recognize you. And then in verse 39, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. So he begins to summarize everything that he said here in the 14th chapter. He says, if you're going to do anything, let's let's do something that edifies everybody. Let's stand up and, and tell forth the word of God. But, in the same breath, what does he say? He says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. In other words, even in this church, in this day, he was saying tongues will cease. I don't believe they ceased yet in the day of Paul, because it says they will cease. And so what he's saying is, hey, I'm not going to forbid the appropriate use of the proper gift of languages. That's okay. You just have to do it by the principles that I've outlined. Two or three at the most, you have to have an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, you, you can't use it. You've got to be quiet. And so he says, on the basis of all that I've said, desire to prophesy. If you're going to desire any spiritual gift, pray that you would have the gift of prophecy. Why? Remember what he said all the way back in verse 3 when we started? The one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, for their encouragement, for their upbuilding, for their consolation. So he says, hey, I would pray that you would ask God to allow you to edify the whole congregation. But at the same time, I'm not going to forbid someone who uses the true gift of languages. So he wasn't all or anything here. He was saying you have to abide by the principles that God's word gives us. He recognized there's a true gift of tongues. That's not the chaotic utterance babbling stuff that was going on. He says that's the, the wrong counterfeit gift, but the true gift, I acknowledge that, and I, I don't forbid it, Paul says. It has its place. But when you come together, you should seek to prophesy because that builds up the whole church. And then the last thing here, he says, and it's kind of the principle that wraps up everything, right? But all things should be done decently and in order. That word decently... Um, you can think of, of, if you're into music, you can think of harmony. That's, that's really the word. You know, if you play notes on a piano and those notes clash with each other. You know, I played the piano today and I hit a couple wrong chords and they clash with what everybody else is playing, right? I heard that very clearly, all right? Um, here he's saying when you do things decently and in order, it refers to everything being done in sequence. There's perfect harmony between the notes, 
And since God is a God of harmony, of beauty, and of order, Paul says when you manifest yourself together as the body of Christ, when you assemble together, you should see those characteristics of God. You should see harmony. You should see beauty. You should see order within the church. And as the church manifests God in that way, he says the church will be multiplied. Um, Now, there's a lot of things that that we went over in that chapter, but that last verse really summarizes the whole thing. Let things be done decently and in order. Um, and, And just to... Just to qualify what I've said this morning, you know, we have a lot of strong women in our church. Uh, They really make up the backbone of those who serve within the body of Christ. It's the women who do. And you know what? We we acknowledge that. We thank you for that. And we we honor you for your strength, for your encouragement, for your responsibility, um, for your grace and kindness and tenderheartedness, your goodness, and, and all the different ways you serve. Um, and, you know, men, we just need to continue to acknowledge that God has a, a place for us within the body of Christ, and that's to lead spiritually, first in our homes, in our churches. And, uh, you know, if you're called to be an elder, if you feel that calling, then you need to speak to Ken or I and, and really um, begin to be used of the Lord in the way that he desires to use you. Because that's the way that you know you're in a solid, Bible-believing, biblical uh, church. Okay? If you show up and the only people running the show are women, you got a problem. Frankly, you got a problem. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll close with one song. Father, we thank you for your goodness this morning. Thank you that we were able to complete this 14th chapter in 1 Corinthians and pray that as we press on into the 15th chapter, chapter of the resurrection, what a glorious truth that will be as we work our way through that. But Lord, we thank you today that we've learned something um, about your place for women in the local congregation. And Lord, we know that they are called to be um, uh, under the authority of, of men who lead the church, elders. There's no place for women elders in a biblical church or a woman pastor even. And, and Father, we acknowledge that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us resolve in that way. But, Lord, we thank you for the women who serve in many ways. And we know that if the women just disappeared from this church tomorrow, there would be gaping holes in so much of what goes on here. Um, it, would be, it would be tough. And so we acknowledge that. But, Lord, we also thank you for the men who serve in many different ways. And, Father, maybe they're not elders yet, but they're, they're striving to grow in their relationship with you. And, 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 Lord, we pray that you would continue to use them in a God-honoring way amongst, amongst us. And, Father, we just pray that you would bless our time of fellowship across the way as well and the food to our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. All God's people said amen. amen.